Conscription day is always the deadliest. Maybe that's why the sunrise is especially beautiful this morning, because I know it might be my last. Hello, and welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest book at the top of the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or re-gift it. I'm Barbara. And I'm Brian. Today, we're reviewing Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros, number one for the sixth week in a row on August 27th, 2023. Before we get to our new number one, tell us what else is happening on the list this week. Three off, three on. Dropping from the list after three weeks is Crook Manifesto by Colson Whitehead. After four weeks, Obsessed by James Patterson and James O'Born. And after two weeks, Sherry Lapina's Everyone Here is Lying. Hmm. Everyone Here is Lying was shoved off the list by what could really be its companion piece, Lisa Jewell's None of This is True. <laughs> right, if everyone's lying, nothing is true, you get it? Yeah, I get it. Also new on the list this week, the Heaven and Earth Grocery Store by James McBride. It entered at number three. And Happiness, the new Danielle Steele book, is on the list as well. Happiness? Yeah, as in Happiness is publishing over 140 best-selling novels. I'm not sure that's how I would define happiness. Okay, how would you? Uh, I don't know, publishing one really good one? <laughs> now, you're not implying anything about the quality of Danielle Steele's prose here, correct? Uh, of course not. Okay, good. Now, before we talk about our new number one, I thought I'd hit you with another little pop quiz if you're game. Ooh, do I have a choice? So you and I are really big on first lines of books and first paragraphs. In fact, we start each episode with a reading of the book's opening. They're dramatic. Conscription day is always the deadliest. Plus, they give a hint of what's to come. It's also a chance for the author to show off their style and try to hook you right away. Right. So I looked at the first lines of some of the other bestsellers on the list this week, not just our number one. Hmm. Yeah, we have three new novels on the list. Here's the game. I will read you the first lines and you match them to the book. Oh, boy. So remember, we've got Happiness by Danielle Steele. None of This is True by Lisa Jewell, which is a suspense novel. And The Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, a work of literary fiction by James McBride. Are you ready? You know I've not read any of these, right? Well, that otherwise there wouldn't be a game. All right, hit me. Okay, I'm assuming you haven't read them. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Opening line number one. Sabrina Brooks lay in bed with her eyes closed for a few minutes after she woke up, savoring the delicious limbo of being half asleep. Mm, Daniel Steele. Yes. Yes! I got Good one. Good job. Okay. okay, there's two more books and two more lines. You remember the titles of the books? None uh, of this is true. Heaven and Earth Grocery Store. Got it. Okay. Opening line number two. Stumbling from the cool of the air-conditioned hotel foyer. Is it foyer or foyer? Uh, I think either is fine. Let me try again. Stumbling from <laughs> the cool of the air-conditioned hotel foyer into the steamy white heat of the night does nothing to sober him up. Uh, none of this is true? Ding, ding, ding. So the third one's going to be very easy. <laughs> Listen to this opening line. There was an old Jew who lived at the site of the old synagogue up on Chicken Hill in the town of Pottstown, PA. And when Pennsylvania state troopers found the skeleton at the bottom of an old well off Hayes Street, the old Jew's house was the first place they went to. Has to be the uh, Heaven and Earth grocery store. 
Right, because you got the other two. So good job on that. Which opening line was your favorite? Hmm. I think probably the last one, the Heaven and Earth grocery store. There was a lot of meat in that line, wasn't there? Yeah. That was a good opening. It pulled me in. It was the most interesting of those three. What's going on with our new number one? What do we know about the author? So Rebecca Yaros is a 42-year-old author from Colorado. She graduated from Troy University with a degree in history and English. Mm -hmm. She's published 20 novels and novellas, love stories, often with a military theme. She has a couple of pets, an English bulldog, and a bunny named General Fluffy Pants. (laughs) For real? (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) And she's opened a nonprofit for kids in foster care called the One October Organization. I'm going to read her stuff just because of General Fluffy Pants. Indeed. Uh, More about the author. Both parents are retired military officers. Her husband, Jason, an Army chief warrant officer who flies, well, flew because he's retired. He flew Apache helicopters. Wow. Yeah, she got some attention a few years ago when she posted an open letter to the Army explaining why after five deployments and 22 years of service, her husband would be rejecting a $105,000 bonus offer. They were trying to get him to sign up for yet another deployment to Afghanistan. Wow, did she say why? Yeah, but guess what? The letter's not posted on her website anymore. Oh. So I read about the letter, but I haven't seen it yet. Got it. Well, she and Jason have six children. Rebecca and her four boys have a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is a group of genetic disorders with symptoms that include stretchy skin, double-jointedness, flat feet, joint pain, and early-onset arthritis. And some of these disorders affect the veins, rarely the major organs. She's written this into Fourth Wing without naming the condition because her main character, Violet, displays many of these kinds of symptoms. Fourth Wing is her first adult fantasy, or what's called new adult fiction. Sometimes it's called romanticy. It's 498 pages and is expected to be the first of a five-part series called Empyrean. The readership is about 93% female, as you might expect for a romanticy. But when you go on um, TikTok and look at the reviews, there's plenty of guys reading it too. The author is repped by Louise Fury. Mm. Another great name. Why do all these literary agents have such cool names? I don't know. Maybe they make them up. <laughs> They're not authors. I, oh, that's I thought true. all the authors had pseudonyms. And the book is published by Red Tower, an imprint of the independent publisher Entangled Publishing. This is a mid-sized romance publisher. And guess what? That makes Fourth Wing the first number one bestseller this year not published by one of the big five. That's exciting. Yeah. The audio recording is 20 hours and 43 minutes, read by Rebecca Soler and Teddy Hamilton. So this one I listened to not at all. What did you, did you listen to it, like what, twice? Yeah. And so... Um, so what was the quality? It was very good. I thought it was, it was well listenable. It was enjoyable. It was easy to follow. And it added, I thought she added a lot to the drama of the, of the work in her performance. And I appreciated that. I already mentioned the TikTok thing. I, you know, you can go on TikTok and hear lots of reviews of this book. This book has an unusual journey to number one. Yeah, so tell us and more. TikTok plays a big part in it. How did that happen? Okay, so first of all, we've done 12 number ones this year. 10 of them debuted at number one and then fell off the list either gradually or, or quickly. That seems to be because these are established authors who have fan bases and they're buying the book the day that it comes out. So they they debut and peak at number one. Now, Fourth Wing also came on the list 
And it did the usual thing where it debuted high, it debuted at number two on May 22nd, and then sort of went off the list pretty quickly, five or six weeks hmm. gone. Completely gone? Yeah. Then it came back. It came back in late June at number 14 and started moving up. And it hit number one on July 23rd. And it's been there for six weeks already. Who knows how many more weeks? Yeah. So guess what triggered that? Book talk. Yes. So book talk is the part of TikTok where people talk about books. T-O-K or T-A-L-K. T-O-K. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they just adopted this. It was a true viral phenomenon. You know, you get on book talk, you wave a book around and say you really liked it. And then maybe five people read it and three of them like it. And they go on book talk and they wave it around and it can explode exponentially. But I think this may be the first one where it actually drove a book back onto the New York Times list and all the way up to number number one one. where it's been. And that's I think that's very exciting phenomenon that people can um, share about it and that they are sharing their own experience. It's very organic, very um, grassroots kind of It really is. And it's not just about how the book gets to number one. It's that they're building a community. These people are, they're digging this book. They're they're doing fan art. They're having all kinds of conversations and arguments about it while they're reading it, after they read it. Oh my gosh, I have to get on TikTok. And Rebecca Yaros is part of it. She's posting TikToks too about the book. Good for her. That's pretty exciting. But now let's move on to the story of the book. So the story takes place in a fantasy domain called The Continent. There are two warring countries that share this island continent, Poramil and Navarre. The main character, Violet Sorengale, is 20 years old, the age where she's expected to enter Navarre's war college and be trained in one of its four quadrants, either as a scribe, a healer, in the infantry, or as a rider. That is, a rider of dragons. (laughs) Okay, so it's like entering the cavalry, except these horses fly and breathe fire. Yeah. So Violet, she already has a long background preparing for a, a career in the scribe profession, which is what her father, who was killed in battle before the book starts, encouraged her to do. But her mother, General Lilith Sorengale, insists that she become a writer, even though Violet, with her small stature and her frailty, which is sort of implicitly due to the connective tissue disorder we already mentioned, she doesn't seem like a natural fit. So the story follows Violet as she enters the Rider Quadrant and struggles to overcome the real and deadly obstacles to succeeding there, while learning whether becoming a Rider is what she wants, not just something her mother forces on her. You become a Rider in this book, this fantasy world, by proving yourself through grueling and often fatal physical tests that are set up by the school, also through sparring matches with other cadets, which can be deadly, And ultimately, by showing the kind of physical dexterity and fighting spirit that will lead a dragon to choose you to bond with. The dragons are not above summarily frying those cadets they see as weak or disrespectful of them. So getting paired with a dragon is another potentially fatal Mm -hmm. challenge. Now, bonding with a dragon, if you're able to get that far, opens up a psychic connection between dragon and rider, which allows them to communicate. Like You know, it's like telepathy but also gives this, the writer this energy that manifests in, in what the author calls their signet power. It's a kind of superpower, and the nature of it is not known beforehand. You don't know what special power you're going to get. Some get the ability to read minds or to shoot out ice or to move really fast, all kinds of different powers floating around in the group. 
So while all this life and death struggle is going on, many of the cadets blow off steam by hooking up with other cadets. Violet's love interests swivel between Dane, her squad leader and friend from back home, and Zayden, her wing leader, that is Dane's boss, who is drop-dead gorgeous, but also seems to be the ultimate bad boy. So Zayden has been marked, like literally tattooed, because he's one of the children of a group of rebels who were put down, you know, not long before the novel begins. So Zayden is, in a sense, a natural enemy of Violet because it's her mother, the general, who had Zayden's parents executed. On the other hand, Zayden's father was reportedly responsible for the battle death of Violet's older brother, Brennan. So this is a toxic combination. But Zayden is good-looking, so how could Violet resist? Well, how good-looking is he? He's so good-looking that... (laughs) mean he could resist if he's just good looking there's a hundred good looking guys there well apparently for violet it's not it's a romantic trope he's the best looking guy in the history of the world let's just be true to the book to her so who does violet pick her hometown honey dane or the big brooding tattooed breathtakingly beautiful wing leader does she survive the training does she get her own dragon? And if so, what superpowers will she manifest? And most importantly, how do Violet and Zayden figure out what book to read next, since there is apparently no TikTok on Navarre? <laughs> to answer all these questions and more, you'll have to read Fourth Wing. As we did. So let's review it. Did it pull you in and hold you there? Yes or no? Tell me. The truth is that grab and grip were slow to take mm. hold of me. Yeah. I, I had a little bit of trouble... But at some point, I shifted into a higher gear, and I got far enough into the story that I really started to enjoy it. And then it picked up speed for me, so much so that by the time I got to the end, I started it over. (laughs) That's a good sign of grab and grab that you're actually starting it over right away. But it was a... It was a slow start and then a steep climb. And then climb. you're in. Yeah. So what did you give this category? I gave it a 3.5. But if you had asked me mm-hmm. before I got to page 200, I probably would have given it a 1.5. Well, I always wait to the end because it can pick up. In my case, I did not give it a high score. I gave it a 1.5. Mm. I had trouble like you. I knew you were really enjoying the book. I kept at it. I started to get into it a little bit, and I marked it, page 150. That was where it happened. That's a long slog for most readers. Yeah. You know, this is a fantasy world. It takes time to establish. Yeah. Um, That's a long hump, though. But the the real problem for me was after page 150, I... I didn't keep my interest very long. I had another little uptick in interest at page 440. A little bit of an action scene there that I liked. This was not a good book for grab and grip for me. For you. I understand. There's a lot of things I'll talk about in the other categories that will help explain that. But one of the things I wanted to mention right off the bat is what you could call the red shirt syndrome. Are you familiar with that meme? It's a Star Trek. Explain what you mean. Okay, so in Star Trek, the... I think the first series, whenever they beam down to a planet, somebody gets killed right away. And of course, it's always an extra. It's not (laughs) going to be Spock. It's not going to be Kirk. It's not going to be Bones. There's this funny thing about Star Trek where it was usually the extra who was wearing a red tunic. No way. Yeah, that's true. So they call it the red shirt syndrome. I've never heard this. And it's a real problem in the book. This book has a lot of killing and a lot of death. It does. It's a harsh school environment. It's set up to weed people out through their deaths. Apparently, they were all wearing red shirts. It's, it's got a little Hunger Games going. <laughs> yeah, it does. But naturally, the writer, has, she can't kill off the main characters. 
So the feeling to me was, oh, there goes another extra. Mm-hmm. There goes another extra. The suspense was not there. So what you're looking for as a reader is how grisly are the deaths? Are they interesting? Are they fun? Because you don't care about all the people that have to die. They're minor characters. To give her credit, she does a pretty good job with the deaths. I thought some of them, remember the guy that was killed on the on the wrestling mat? Yeah. Had his neck snapped? That's pretty gruesome. The, so that's part of the problem with, with why I didn't get pulled in was the red shirt syndrome. There are deeper problems, though, that we can talk about in the other categories, such as she got flair. This is about her writing style, would you think? I did appreciate some of her phrases. I I just gave a couple of examples. Um, one of the things she said was, I can almost taste the loathing wafting off him like a bitter cologne. Mm-hmm. I thought that one was good. And then there was another one. I hate how everything feels unsettled, sticky, like putting clothes on before you're fully dry after a bath. Yeah, those are good. Those are good. But I, I felt like I absorbed her particular style. And that, like once I was all in that I wasn't really even evaluating it anymore i was just like in and that I, works yeah so i gave it i gave it a three so i gave it a two generally i did not like her style i don't understand why some of these books are so humorless I, this one in particular there's just nothing there's very little that's funny that's going on this is very much a matter of writer's style where she tries to be funny it didn't work for me it was very sophomoric like mm. she's got one example where they're in class so if you offend him, talking about a dragon, so if offend him, your lunch, Riddock says from my left, and the class laughs. Here's another one where Rhiannon, Violet's best friend, you know, beats somebody on the sparring mat. And then it says, Rhiannon raises victorious as we clap. She pats him on the head, which makes me laugh. So the humor, the little bit that's in there was kind of reminded me of like adolescence in gym class. Another one. Are we telling dick jokes now? Riddock asks, because my entire life has led up to this very moment. <laughs> So that's another little bit of humor. There's, it's exaggeration, sarcasm, I mockery. Thought, I thought that was funny, though. <laughs> the, a very, a couple of very noticeable aspects of her style. I didn't know what to call it. I said relentlessly modern. So this is a fantasy world. It's not part of Earth. It's often some undefined zone. Yet it's filled with not just slang, not just modern English, but slang from like the last year or two. Mm. And it's unrelenting. She uses phrases like, I gift him the middle finger. Positive thinking for the win, right? Orly's parents have chosen door number two. Or here's another one. What the actual fuck happened out there? Another one. I want to be like the cool kids. Using all those modern idioms doesn't make me feel like this is a fantasy world. And then I uh, came across a TikTok where somebody came to the defense. Apparently other people were making this criticism and somebody pointed out right at the very beginning of the book is a little note about how the whole thing has been translated from Navarian into modern language. Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't change the effect of it as you're reading. It, it doesn't feel like a fantasy world. So that put me off. She has a, a characteristic I would call, you could call purple prose. This is where everything is like over-exaggerated a stampede of grief tramples my heart, stealing my breath. Another example, it takes all the willpower in my body not to reach for my chest and make sure he didn't just rip my heart out from behind my ribs. So she uses this kind of trait of exaggerating. It reminded me of the way like our teenage girls would talk to each other. Mm. Everything, everything is life and death. Everything is, my heart is falling through my chest onto the floor. Yeah. That style actually, for me, drains some of the emotion. It's too much. 
Got it. First of all, the humor part, like it's so everything in this story is life and death. It's like she's she's cheating death at every corner. Everything she faces might end up with her dead. And so it seems to me that there's not a lot of humor in that. Like there's not a lot of opportunities for humor. And I didn't I didn't feel like it was lacking with respect to some of the other things. Like this might be one of the things that is helped by the audiobook because the audio voice it's written in the um, or first person. So Violet is describing her own experience and the the voice of the of the reader is is so good. It's like you hear Violet talking and it is sort of like our teenage girls sometimes. Well, there you go. See, that's and another example helped. of how yeah. the audio can really change your experience. We've seen that before. Yeah. I did end up giving her a two for flair, but I want to give her props. Like I was thinking, well, why did this sort of melodramatic way of phrasing things about the heart dropping down the onto the floor not work for me when it sort of did for Emily Henry when we read Happy Place? Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, it's because the artistry, there's a little more artistry in the way Emily Henry would do these really dramatic. And remember, she talked about how she liked YA, young adult, because you could be more emotional. Yeah. And this book, by the way, for me, read very much like a young adult, except with explicit sex scenes added and a lot of F-bombs dropped. I think it was because of the artistry was lacking. But So here's an example where this author, Rebecca Yaros, does sort of craft a metaphor. She says at one point, I imagine, this is after she feels like she's been betrayed. Mm. And the main character, Violet, says, I imagine this is what it feels like to be cleaved apart with a dull, rust-covered blade. Mm -hmm. It's not honed enough to slice quickly, and there's a 100% chance the wound is going to fester. Mm. That's really well done. Mm. So if she just put a little bit more artistry into some of these phrases, it would be great. Uh, I wanted to give her credit also for a couple of phrases that I think she made up. A drift of griffins and a riot of dragons. Yeah, that was great. So when you're naming a group of creatures, mythical or real, you get to do things like a flock of geese or a pod of whales. Or a gaggle. A gaggle. (laughs) That's better. And she came up with a riot of dragons. And I looked it up, and apparently the most common term for a group of dragons is thunder, which is also good, but riot is better. Yeah. And guess what the most common word for a group of griffins is? Remember, griffins is a mythical creature, half lion, half eagle. What is it? The most common are either pride, flight, or wing. Oh, interesting. And she came up with a drift of griffins. That's really good. So flare, two for me, three for you. The next category is beam me up. World building, Always a big category, but particularly in a fantasy world. How'd she do for you with this? I had a slow start to getting into it. And part of that was that I was resisting the world building. I didn't want her to explain it, but there there was really no other way to Mm -hmm. understand it and to take it in. So it was like, I didn't want to take the time to really take in those details. But when I did, I took in enough of the details to understand the book. I got all the way to the end. And then I realized, oh, there's a lot here. So I started Uh, it over. And when I got, when I went through it again, I realized how, like, she has such a clever way of getting the details out. Like, so for the main character, Violet, when she is stressed, which is often, or um, in danger, and, and trying to calm her mind, she'll recite 
details because she was training to be a scribe. And so those details are informative for mm-hmm. us in terms of building the world. And and I felt like that at first I didn't wasn't sure that rang true, but it, I really do think it does. Like if I were stressed, I might sing to myself, but she said directly, she doesn't sing. So this is what she does to calm her mind in it. And so on my second pass, I was really looking hungrily for those details to really understand this world. Mm-hmm. And I... I do think she did a good job with it, and I thought those little details were very interesting. And also the the other thing that leaked into the dribs and drabs of the world were in the, the beginning of each chapter had a little quote from some mm-hmm. Navarian text or whatever, and those were always informative. And again, second time through, often were setting up something that was coming. I actually didn't have any trouble with how she communicated this this fantasy world. I thought she did a good job with it. It's always a challenge. Mm-hmm. You've got to get the information out somewhere. And, you know, I saw a couple book talkers who didn't like that device you mentioned where she's reciting information to herself to mm-hmm. help her relax. I liked it. I thought it was clever and yeah. it, it was revealing of her character. For me, the problem with the world was not how it was revealed to us. I didn't like the world. I actually called this Dungeons and Dragons without the dice. It just felt like this is just a game world. Everybody has a power. You've got dragons. You've got griffins. You've got two countries at war. And we're going to fight it out. There was no more to the culture than that. It was a very two-dimensional world. It was fighting and sex. And the sex, by the way, is not a, a major part of the book. There's two very definitely hardcore explicit sex scenes and a lot of talk about sex here and there. This is a book about people fighting, plain and simple. Like if you were playing a board, a, a table game or a war game, there is no literature, there's no religion, there's no art, no music, no dance, no industry, no sport, no fun. Even the scribes are somber and serious. I, I even wrote down one line here. You wanted a quiet life full of books. You wanted to record the battles. I'm like, the scribes are only recording the battles? What kind of culture is that? Why aren't they recording, you know, drama and poetry and literature? It's a very sad, bleak world with a lot of death, a lot of struggle, and nothing else very much like a board game. For me, like, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I don't love that part of the world, but they set up the conflict and this people, the Navarian people, are in this conflict and they their only choice is to fight to survive. I mean, it's almost like if you said, well, Ukraine right now is under attack for over a year at this point, you know, a year, almost you, a year and a Ukraine half. Ukraine has a literature. They have poets. They have something worth defending. This country is, only, as far as what the author has revealed to us, is only all about fighting. Just because you're on the defensive and you have a military structure doesn't mean there's nothing else going on in that society, but that's what it seems like from what she's written. What my point is about mentioning Ukraine is that's all they can do right now too is defend themselves. Like whatever literature they had before, they're under attack and so is this world. And so I don't I don't fault them for I do. It, you know, interestingly, even as Ukraine is in a life and death struggle. They're explaining to the rest of the world what they're defending. There's a lot more out there now than there used to be about what is the Ukrainian language? What is their poetic tradition? What's their history? They themselves are exploring that. And that's part of what makes a world interesting, worth visiting, worth defending. And there's none of that here. And I I don't think you can quibble with that part of it. It's just not there in the book. 
So I didn't like that about the world. There is another feature that the sex is described so negatively. Hmm. It's reflexively negative. She's got sexual desires, but she, and so does Zayden, so does Dane, her two main love interests. And they're always presented as this is a big problem, which is interesting because in this community, there aren't any strong rules against them cohabitating. This is one thing that's allowed to them. And I'll just read you some quotes so you can see what I'm talking about. Heat rushes through every vein. I hate the reaction of my body to the side of him. Another line, I hate how his touch elevates my heart rate. I loathe the way my body demands I lean back into his touch. Every single time she talks about her desire, it's couched in negative terms, which is, to me, remarkable because most people want to be in love. Most people crave that. That's why we read romances, to experience it vicariously. It's actually a positive part of life, unless you've internalized some very deeply reactionary, what you could call anti-sex point of view. And by the way, Zayden does it too. Here's my reaction to that. Yeah. She's attracted to him. She knows he's not good for her. Or she believes he's not good for her. So she tries to resist. Like, I, I don't get any sense from her that she she's not interested in sex in general or she's puritanical by default. She says things like, oh, I still need to get laid. Um, you know, it's an improvement over some of the romances where there's like, just throw caution to the wind. No, she's actually trying to be discerning and having some mm -hmm. kind of boundary about someone she has determined is potentially toxic or she thinks he's completely toxic for her because of the history. She believes that he wants to kill her. She believes that he can never care for her. And so allowing herself to get involved with someone like that would be disastrous for her. I take your point. Okay. I, I think that there's different ways to interpret that. Sure. But the, the, the upshot of it is you enjoyed being in this world for a while. I did not. So I ended up with a 1.5. I gave it a 3.5. So it looks like we're pulling apart on this book. This is getting interesting. <laughs> That's <laughs> we usually, okay. We usually agree. We'll see what happens. Okay, so new best friends. Another very important category, the characters. Did you make any new best friends in yeah. this book? So I do really appreciate Violet. I really loved her as the main character. I loved her vulnerability, her heart, her courage, her ability to work through her pain. It's mm -hmm. inspiring to me and likely to many others. On some level, I think every one of us has something that connects to that, like that um, that disability or that, you know, she doesn't want to appear weak. She works harder than everyone else. And because of her unique experience with that disorder, which is not named in the book, but clearly she has as part of her experience, she ends up showing the rest of the world how strong she really is. And I loved the dragons in this story. Mm -hmm. I loved the friendships she develops. I really enjoyed this book and the characters. The men, I don't really want to comment on the two main love interests because... That's what everybody in Book Talk is talking about. That's well, like the biggest topic of discussion. Which one should she pick, well, if either? So you're free to comment on everybody else's. I just feel like it's too close to spoiler for me to say anything about them. So I'll say something about them in the next book. We don't do any spoilers here. That's correct. But it sounds like you were more connected with the female lead than the guys floating around her. Is yeah, that correct? Absolutely. So what did you end up with on this category? I gave it a four. I liked Violet as well. I thought she was an interesting character. She's got a nice arc where she's forced into this yes. quadrant by her mother. Mm -hmm. Not really 
I mean, it's very clear that she's considered short, tiny, weak, fragile, but very, very smart. And she's got some physical abilities that help her out. And it's not just that she overcomes the physical challenges. She comes to decide whether she wants to be a writer rather than a scribe. And that's traced nicely. I don't have any real trouble with her character. The dragons were pretty cool and pretty awesome. Yes. Another thing you see when you look at the reviews, people love the dragons. Yeah. That was my favorite part of the book, around the middle. Yeah. And I'll tell you what started to ruin it for me. Mm. Yeah. The dragons kill people just at will. They're so awesome. Literally, the cadets are paraded in front of them when they're getting ready to pick who they're going to bond with. And if they don't like a human, they just fry him on the spot. What are these creatures? And she describes their their physicality really well. And they come across as so sublime, you know, big, terrifying, right next to you. Mm-hmm. You could die any instant on a whim of theirs. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was great. And then once the characters start bonding with the dragons, they start communicating with them telepathically. They lose that sense of being other of being different, of being a different species, like aliens. They just become almost avuncular, like one of them is called a curmudgeon at one point. You start hearing how they talk and think, and they they become very ordinary. And I lost some of that sense of the awesome and the sublime. Well, that was one of the things that I loved about them, was that you could get to know them, that you could look underneath the crusty exterior and find the heart and that she was able to become familiar enough with them that she could sort of be a little sassy and and i i liked that part i I imagine you know if finn could talk to us he would be a little curmudgeonly at some points well you know you know these are her choices and they probably work for a lot of readers i liked it better when they were really frightening and different and you couldn't really even understand them well enough to talk to them. Now, before we leave this category, this is probably a good place to put in an audio example. And I've got an example where she's, they're getting to the stage where they might get to bond with a dragon if the dragon picks them. So all the cadets are out there and some of them are not doing so well. Some of them are getting knocked off by these dragons. And Violet sees a little dragon that's kind of helpless and is about to be attacked by some of the bullies in her squad. And this is what happens. Let's take a listen. You have to get out of here, I hiss from the cover of the trees, knowing it should be able to hear me. They're going to kill you if you don't leave. Its head pivots toward me, then tilts at an angle that makes my own neck hurt. Yes, I whisper loudly. You, Goldie! It blinks its golden eyes and swishes its tail. You have to be fucking kidding me. Go! Run! Fly! I shoo at it. Then remember it's a god's damned dragon capable of shredding me with its claws alone, and I drop my hands. This is not going well. It's going the opposite of well. The trees rustle from the south, and Jack steps into the clearing, his sword swaying in his right hand. A step later, he's flanked by Orin and Tynan, both their weapons drawn. Shit. I mutter, my chest tightening. This is now officially going horribly. The golden dragon's head snaps in their direction, a low growl rumbling in its chest. We'll make it painless, Jack promises. 
like that makes the murder acceptable. Scorch them, I whisper shout, my heart pounding as they draw closer. But the dragon doesn't, and somehow, I'm certain in the marrow of my bones that it can't. Other than its teeth, it's defenseless against three trained warriors. It's going to die just because it's smaller, weaker than the other dragons. Just like me. Yeah, so I think that is a really good example of, it shows her character mm-hmm. and how, how brave she is and how she identifies with this little dragon. Yeah, that's a really good example. I thought it was a, it's a good scene. And it goes on. It gets more powerful. Yeah. The, uh, the last part about, about the characters I want to mention is her relationships. I thought they were stale. I'm sorry. I know this is a trope in the literature. It's called Enemies to Lovers. And some people read books for the tropes. That's what they want to see. I'm tired of it. And I haven't even read that many romances. I've read like three (laughs) or four in the last year. And the guys are always the same. Broody, bossy, unbelievably gorgeous, and with institutional power. In other words, bosses. Mm. So yeah, women go for that. But do we have to see every single... Remember in this one, Zayden is her boss's boss. Dane is her boss. Uh, they've got boundary issues. The, the, this is like striking because we just reviewed a book by Nora Roberts where the main character, Morgan, Morgan in identity, is being chased, right, stalked. And her love interest just puts a, sta- puts a security system in without talking to her about it. So the same thing happens in this, except they use magic because they don't have technology. It's a fantasy world. <laughs> So I'll just, read, I'll just read this. I'm protected at night, she says. Yeah, he warded your door. Warded means put magic protection around it. The morning after the attack. Shit, I don't know how to feel about that. It's more than slightly controlling and way out of line, but also sweet. We've seen that before. One of her lovers, I won't say which one because we don't give any spoilers here, after they've started to come together, says, as of this moment, I'm taking over. Taking over what? Everything when it comes to you. Later, she says, in this moment, he has the power to break me, and I'd let him. I surrender completely. (sighs) Okay. (laughs) This is so old-fashioned. Like, this is 2023. This is new adult fiction, supposedly. It's the same setup that romance literature has done for however many years. And it's not interesting. It's not advancing anything. It's actually really boring to me, and, and I have to say, irritating reaction i don't know how to react to that because they're strong they're good looking they're brooding they're they're controlling they have all this power they're all you know how many times do we have to see that before we say okay could i have another relationship now please well what's the what would you rather see as the quintessential desirable relationship i don't want to see the quintessential i want to see something real and authentic and different do you remember when we reviewed uh, Lessons in Chemistry. Yes. That author went to great lengths to describe the love interest as physically repulsive. That's different. You never see that. (laughs) Well, maybe there's good reason. That's interesting. (laughs) So wait a minute. Is boring for you if they're good looking and she wants to be with them? It's boring if it's formulaic. It's also a little sad. We talked about this with with identity. We talked about it quite a bit with that book because it's so extreme. Why do these women accept that, well, if I'm going to be in love, it's going to be with somebody who's controlling and broody and inaccessible? 
I thought you were there with me. I thought you had the same yeah. reaction, this sort of thing. So in general, yeah, I mean, I had the same reaction that you had in identity. Right now we're being controlled by our cat. I, <laughs> Our cat is broody, she's broody, but very good looking. And bossy. She's actually <laughs> drop dead gorgeous. Drop- <laughs> and she can get away with all these meows. Yeah. Like for me, I felt like this was a little bit different than the usual because she's trying to resist being attracted to this person, as I mentioned earlier, because of the obvious mm-hmm. boundary issues. Like she's trying to draw a boundary, but she's also describing attraction and she's like she's trying to exercise some control over it herself but it isn't easy and it's not really working so I'm like as we know attraction is not all within one's control I didn't mind it I didn't it didn't seem as tropey as some of the some of the romances that I have read and you're right it does like every single one like every harlequin has the same plot mm. I mean, that's apparently never going to change. Look, they have the same plot because it works. And people read them because they like it. So this is why it's a subjective reaction. Yes. This book doesn't work for me. I gave this category a two, I believe, because because the relationship didn't move me at all. What did you give New Best Friends? I gave it a four. So if this is the kind of story you like, you've got it. You've got it. It's right here. She doesn't stray very far outside the bun. She's written a lot of romances, so she knows what she's doing. She's written like 20 of them. Yeah, and she, I mean, she wrote some pretty hot so if, love scenes. Oh, they're, yeah, this is young adult, except with very sex scenes so explicit. If you didn't know how to have sex, just read that. <laughs> it's do it yourself. Okay, instruction. All right, what's the next category? Even, even with the parts accurately named. <laughs> Well, the last category is all the feels, and and I'm just going to tell you, I gave it a 1.5, and there's not much to add to what I've already said. I was not drawn in. I didn't care for the world. Uh, the relationship didn't interest me, and uh, I didn't have a lot of strong emotional reactions, so 1.5. So for all the feels, I gave it a 4. I laughed. I cried. I shrieked. You and shrieked. I did. <laughs> That's and a good sign. I had to wait for it's you working. to finish the story so we could talk about it, which was very painful. That's rough. Mm. But so I am excited about the next book in the series, which apparently will be out by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so our combined score is a 2.65, but it's really a split. You were at a 1.7. I'm at a 3.6. And that's the furthest apart we split on any one book. Yeah. It's like the old Siskel and Ebert format with one thumbs up mine and one thumbs down yours right it's not like we're giving this book a three it's like i gave it a two and you gave it a four that's close the accurate way to put it which is fine yeah you know i like the fact that there's a community building around this book i think it's exciting that there's new ways for people to get into literature and talk about it there's there's people drawing pictures of these characters and I think it's all great. And I give you credit because I know that neither romance nor fantasy are your thing. <laughs> and apparently neither is romanticy. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay that it's not your thing, but you still read it. And I appreciate but it. But guess what? It's getting quite high scores mm. on the social media. It's got a 4.8 going on Amazon, 4.67 on Goodreads, and 4.58 on Storygraph, which is an average of 4.68. Mm. So I went back and looked at the 12 books we reviewed this year. average, the highest of all 12. What? Yes, she's doing great. And the next one in line is 4.57 for Only the Dead, which we didn't like that much. That's the second highest in the ratings. And Encore and Death, which we pretty much hated, is third. Wow. 
down near, near the bottom are Dark Angel at 4.15 and Simply Lies at 4.06. So all these bestsellers are in the four range. Yeah. Now, I will say that even though I didn't rate the book that high, I am glad that I read it. I feel like I'm part of this incredible community that's building yes. uh, around the Empyrean series. I even ordered the next installment already, which is called Iron Flame. Wow. Yeah, part two. We are set to receive it on November 8th, the day after release, on our doorstep, either by drone or a human being, or maybe a dragon will drop it off, but it's going to be on our doorstep November 8th. But guess where we're going to be? What? On November 8th. We're not going to be here? No. Uh, We're traveling that day. Oh, no. Where are we going to be? I think we're going to be in Bangkok that day. So. Okay, wait, wait. When we're in Bangkok, if we're there on November, I'm going to find the biggest bookstore in that city, and they better damn well have this book. And if they only have it in Thai, I'm feeding it through Google Translate. Okay. Or we could just get it on Kindle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited either way. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next episode when we review the Pulitzer Prize-winning bestseller, Demon Copperhead, by Barbara Kingsolver. Can't wait. Until then, keep dreaming, keep flying. Keep laughing, keep crying. And don't stop until you've read them all.